friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are so happy to have our listeners with us. Thank you to our loyal listeners. Thank you for sharing our radio show and our podcast with your friends and family. We hope that the conversations that we have here with our very many splendid guests will spark great consequences in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit, and also in your conversations with your families and with your friends. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time or catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. You can go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts and put in conversations with consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today we have a great show for you as we do every week. At the bottom of the hour, I'll be speaking to my TCA colleagues and friends, Ashley McGuire and Lee Sneed, who will be my co-hostesses. We'll be talking about walking with moms in need, which is a, a great effort, a new effort by the USCCB that we featured on the show before. We had Archbishop Nauman to talk about it, who is spearheading this effort. It's a way of getting all of the parishes and archdioceses in the U.S. on one page when it comes to creating that welcoming society for children so that abortion is not even considered, or if it's considered, it's quickly set aside as a consideration because it's it's so much better to be welcoming and loving to children. For that, we will have Cristina Arriaga to talk with us. Cristina Arriaga is the former vice chair of the United States Council for International Religious Freedom. We want to get her ideas about China now that the Olympics are going on, but also other places of interest around the world. Welcome to the show, Christina. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Christina, you were the you're the former vice chair of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, and you have such a good understanding of, you know, all the concepts of religious freedom and the way they play out over the globe and the way and really the way that we all should interact with ideas of religious freedom and, and as Americans, as people who really value religious freedom and, and as and, and in the way that we relate to other countries officially and also sort of in a personal, non official way. So all of that to come around to to ask you um, to talk about the Olympic Games playing out in China, what has caught your attention looking at it through the religious freedom lens, the engagement of the world with, with China? Now, what has caught my attention, and I think the attention of the world, is that China has tried to sports wash its abuses uh, against religious people in China by trying to distract the world from what's going on with the religious communities 
there. As you well know, it's estimated there are 2 million Uyghurs in concentration camps in China. The Uyghurs are a ethnic group uh, that practices um, a version of Islam, and they have been relentlessly and mercilessly tortured, uh, sent to re-education camps. The women have been subjected to mandatory and invasive birth control and sexual abuse as well. And the United States has called this what it is, which is a genocide. The fact that the entire world is looking at, for instance, drug issues associated with athletes, as they should, but has turned a blind eye to what's going on with these communities is embarrassing and, and shameful. Same thing with the Christian communities in China. They have been suppressed. They have been silenced. Many pastors have been abducted. Many churches have been destroyed. Many congregations no longer have a leader because they have been arrested. And again, the world has turned a blind eye. I mean, they're happy to watch television and see the beautiful skaters. But frankly, we should not have. The United States, as the beacon of hope and uh, holding the gold standard of religious freedom, should not have participated in this Olympics and should have demanded that the Olympics either be canceled or take place elsewhere. And, and Christina, what, in your estimation, what is the reason that the United States just chose not to engage uh, in that sense with China, because it is, it's, it's quite something to say as an official proclamation to say China is in the midst of a genocide. I mean, that's a tremendous word. It, it implies so much suffering and so much torture. And, and at the same time say, okay, we'll send our, you know, our delegation over there and we'll play sports with you. Why, why do you think this happened? Well, unfortunately, the Department of State's uh, foreign policy uh, has artificially divorced human rights issues from foreign policy. And the same thing has happened with many industries in the United States. We're losing our conscience. Uh, we're losing our moral compass. And unfortunately, the sports industry thinks that they can separate themselves from human suffering by ignoring it. And it's it's really... Uh, a travesty and we had we had the chance of taking a tremendous stand against china to support religious communities in china and unfortunately we missed the boat and instead decided to participate in the olympics christina there's, there's kind of a sense that we're all being gaslit um i was recently reading an article about eileen gu who you know it's actually unclear she's competing in the olympics she's won a gold uh, she was born in the United States, is, I think, a U.S. citizen, but is competing for China. And um, when she's asked by reporters just sort of point-blank questions about where is she a citizen, she, she gaslights everybody and, and goes off about her haters, quote-unquote. And it, it sort of feels like a, like a little microcosmic example of what's going on with the Olympics in total, that, you know, people are asking real questions, like, why are we participating in this? Why is this happening? And we're either getting total silence from the press or just being sort of gaslit and um, you know I think do you, to what extent do you think the, the press is complicit in all of this? Yeah the the old idea of a press that objective and is reporting only is no longer uh, a reality around the world and in the United States unfortunately they're the reporters bring in their bias into situations and they're not they're not asking incisive questions because we know what happens, right? The reporter will get canceled 
canceled or we'll get in trouble or we'll be accused of taking one side or the other. And those courageous reporters that have changed people's lives by their reporting are far and few in between. But I also don't want to sound pessimistic or, or negative. It, we should not have participated in the Olympics. It's true that reporters ask more incisive questions. But I also think that this pandemic has brought the entire world to its knees and in terms of accepting the fact that we're mortal human beings and that life is short and fragile. And I'm hoping that our children having experienced this will begin to realize that what's really important about life is to live a life well lived. And I see examples all over the world of extreme courage and people resigning their positions to serve others and people redirecting their energy to improve the world. And we've hit rock bottom with the Olympics, but I also think that there's going to be a lot of inquiries about why we're doing this. Why have we lost our moral compass? What is life really about? One of the beautiful examples that we've seen coming out of China is Jimmy Lai, who was the owner and was the owner of and founder of Apple Daily, which is one of what well, maybe was is the last uh, independent newspaper in, in Hong Kong or independent journalistic effort in Hong Kong. He elected to stay in China, in Hong Kong and then and, and accept uh, a false imprisonment for his views. Um, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in awe of someone like that, a billionaire who, you know, could have jumped on a jet and gone to Tahiti to, to spend the rest of his of his well-earned uh, retirement. What do you think about Jimmy Lai, uh, Christina? Oh, the story of Jimmy Lai and his entire family is astounding uh, and inspiring. He was only eight years old when he began to notice that there were other ways to be informed and to reach the public. And he's a, he's a self-made man. He's a devout Catholic. He lives his principles. And he knew that by sacrificing possibly the rest of his life in prison, he would be highlighting what is going on and what the Chinese government is doing. It's, it's tragic, and we should certainly pray for him to continue to be strong. But you're right, the example of, of this man who has essentially given up his life and his freedom and, and his wealth and contact with his family is um, something that we should we should remember uh, in our everyday life. When, whenever things get a little hard in, a, in our first world countries, I think it's important to remember that people like Jimmy Lai are paying for our freedom with their own sacrifice. Christina, for our listeners, could you explain a little bit more about the why? Why are the Uyghurs a threat to the Chinese government? And, and sort of likewise, why are Christians um, being persecuted? You know, a lot of our listeners, most of our listeners, are Catholic, and you know, there's a similar sense. You know, that Catholics aren't being put in concentration camps, but there's certainly a, a, a lot of oppression going on and a, and a sort of underground. They've been forced underground, and and why? Is is that? What is it about these different minority groups that are such a threat to China? The current regime in China started a process of making the Chinese more Chinese. And what they started to demand was blind obedience from the regime. And nothing is more dangerous to an autocratic uh, regime, to a dictator, than having uh, people who have their own conscience, who know that 
they're born with certain rights and that one of them is the ability to live according to their deeply held religious convictions. So the way that the Chinese government started to handle it was to, for instance, put photographs of their leaders right next to a crucifix in a Catholic church and demanding that homilies be censored. And then uh, the process of becoming, quote-unquote, more Chinese included taking down religious buildings and, and taking down communities that understand that their own moral compass, that their insight doesn't belong to the state, that the state does not give them rights, and so the state cannot take them away. And the Chinese have an enormous machinery of surveillance. They have facial recognition technology. They have a credit system where your cell phones are being tracked. They know exactly who you are. They know who you're talking to. They know if you leave your house on Sunday to go to church. They know which door you take out. And that credit system amounts to being able to purchase things and being able to get jobs in the government. So the entire apparatus is geared towards beating people into submission. And we know that people understand that religious people have a different compass than the one the state gives them. And that is very dangerous to, to the Chinese. Christina, I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but I've been curious. Is the, the I know about the Chinese uh, social credit system, more or less. I know the, like, the broad strokes of it. it. Do you think belonging to a Catholic church or uh, an evangelical home, a uh, Christian group, or um, does that detract from somebody's social credit? Oh, absolutely. The government officials oftentimes stand outside of, of large congregations, taking essentially attendance records, seeing who's going in, who's coming out, and those people become marked. So even if you have underground churches where individuals are not publicly attending a church for fear of being ticked off as religious people, then those people's phones are tracked. And if they go into a home of a person who needs ministry, that person also falls into the same category as a religious person. Anyone in China who is in any way openly religious is risking becoming a martyr immediately, and is risking their children having arrested, and is risking uh, losing their job, and is risking being sent out to a work camp. And a work camp is a nice way of calling essentially a killing field. It's a place where you're not likely to, to come out. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague and co-hostess, Ashley, Ashley McGuire, and we're talking to Christina Arriaga. She's the former vice chair of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. Christina, you and I are both Cuban-American, and we're very much, we're people that really feel the, the, the pain of the Cuban people, which in many ways is, is similar to the pain of the people in China, and on a more tropical, and <laughs> with a more tropical environment, uh, and maybe some more looseness because of the, the way Cuba handles itself. It doesn't handle itself like China exactly. But many of the same ideas uh, of how to control a populace and and why why religion is such a threat are also are also uh, happening in in Cuba. Tell us uh, about how you see Cuba right now. We all heard a lot about Cuba recently when there were a lot of protests on the streets, uh, the Patria y Vida protests, uh, homeland and life. And uh, but we don't hear very much uh, anymore. 
Yeah, Cuba is at an inflection point. What happened on, in July continues to happen. Uh, we just don't hear about it. Uh, just last week, I was speaking to a Catholic priest from Camagüey, Father Alberto, who uh, told me that the youth in Cuba, uh, particularly the, the Catholic youth, are seeing an opportunity to continue to press for reform in Cuba. As you know, in July, there was... A, there were a lot of people that took to the street. Right now, what the Cuban government is doing, it's it's a very sophisticated campaign against religious people. So, first of all, children under 16 who participated in those demonstrations are being sentenced to 10, 15, 20 years in prison. Oh, my Lord. To, to set an example for families who have children at that age and for anyone who dares to to stand up to the regime. The second thing that's happening is that Cuba's um, alliance with Nicaragua has made it so very recently, just a few weeks ago, Nicaragua removed the the demand or the requirement that Cubans get a visa. So the word spread immediately that for about $8,000 average per person, you could fly to Nicaragua and then get someone to immediately take you to the border of the United States and cross through. What's happening now? People are writing relatives in the United States, borrowing the money, arriving into the border where they're, they're let in and arriving already in debt. But what's also happening is that Cuba is sending to the border agents of Fidel Castro, the, the spy regime the spies for the regime are among the most sophisticated in the world i remember senator john mccain who was a pow in vietnam telling me that his best torturer had been trained by the cubans and that continues to be the case uh and what that is doing for churches like the church of father alberto in camagüey he has a population of people who are who are Catholic and want to stay in the island, but if they get the chance of the money, they're going to go to Nicaragua and try to get to the border to get to the relatives in the United States. The families that are devout Catholic don't want their children to get involved in any anti-government activity. And just last month, Father Alberto, in front of his church, had a quote-unquote acto de repudio, which is an engineered demonstration um, uh, by government officials against him. Why? But Alberto is not afraid. He's willing to die for his country. But people that walk in and out of church know that they are government demonstrators also taking down their names and also seeing who goes in and out of the church. But Alberto tells me that um, things have hit a tipping point, And just like I think there is great hope for the Cuban people that they will continue to press on and take to the streets and they will want to, after 63 years of having a dictatorship and not having elections, they want their freedom. They want to be able to worship according to their deeply held religious convictions. They want to be able to participate in, in a process. And uh, again, there, even though the repression is tremendous, I'm very hopeful that we will see changes in short order. Christina, the, your mentioning of the sort of government rent of protesters just <laughs> sort of validates this sense, I think, that so many people have of, it's, you don't know what, it's sort of the new tactic of these regimes, and it's, um, you know, 
not just in Cuba. It seems to be everywhere. You know, there's even been stories of some of these protesters being hired or, you know, in the United States to protest things here. And it's, it just adds another layer to, uh, I think, confusion for people as to what's true and what's not. Um, I, going back to Cuba, though, I was wondering, you know, there's been so much back and forth between different administrations in terms of what's the best approach that the United the United States can take in terms of um, diplomacy. You know, as a Cuban American yourself, what um, what is this administration doing or not doing, and what is sort of the single most um, urgent action needed now from our government to help the people of Cuba, in your opinion? The Biden administration has not denounced what is going on in Cuba, even though it has engaged in denouncing several other regimes. Everything that's happening in Latin America right now, in Venezuela, where you have a dictatorship, in Libya, where you have a dictatorship, in Nicaragua, where Catholic priests are getting arrested and imprisoned and the opposition uh, candidates are being sentenced to tens of years in prison. Everything that is going on right now is a tumor that started in Cuba and needs to be addressed in Cuba. What people may not know is that when never dollars go to Cuba or tourists go to Cuba, the Cuban people do not benefit from that commerce or that trade or that assistance. In fact, in the Cuban constitution right now, the penal code is trying to criminalize the receiving any money from the United States. So what, for instance, what is the life of uh, a dentist in Cuba? A dentist who was trained goes into his or her office every day. She doesn't have access to gloves. She doesn't have anything to repair people's teeth. She makes $20 to $40 a month. And to go to the dollar store and get goods, for instance, a small a gallon of orange juice is $15. So that is almost the wages for the entire month. So what we need to do is side with the Cuban people against the Cuban government instead of establishing a commercial relationship with Cuba that only benefits a corrupt government. But a lot of people believe the Cuban government um, propaganda that the embargo is hurting Cuban people. And, And it always seems, it seems amazing to me because I understand that the Cuban government can trade with the entire world. Not with the U.S. officially, but the whole world's open to them. And and yet, as you say, in Cuba, to get a gallon of orange juice, you have to spend all, uh, half a month's wages. So why, why, why can't people see that very easy to see truth, Christina? Why do you think? The PR machinery in Cuba is one of the best in the world. And regrettably... Uh, a lot of countries channel their hatred towards the United States by also promoting that vision of Cuba as a revolutionary country that stood up to the United States. Mm. Uh, Christina, going back to this administration, um, there was headlines not too long ago that the State Department took the country of Nigeria off of a list of religious freedom aggressors, which was pretty shocking to people. Um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong about that news, but... Um, you know, in my mind, I think of 
Nigeria as being one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian. And, you know, the headlines are always telling horrible stories about extremely bloody and violent attacks on people, you know, even in the sacred, you know, walls of a church. Should we be concerned about that? And and why do you think they were taken off the list? And, and you know, what are some other areas of concern in the world that you think are not being taken seriously in terms of religious freedom violations? Yes, regrettably, Nigeria was taken off the list of a country of particular concern. What does that mean? When I was in Nigeria, I watched, I I saw the repression against Christians in Nigeria. Nigeria is home to one of the most dangerous terrorist groups in the world. And that terrorist group continues to grow because the Nigerian civil society, the Nigerian government is not equipped to deal with these terrorist groups. It's a place of astounding poverty and one of the few places where the, and the churches are one of the few places where Christian populations can find a place for assistance. I spoke to a man, for instance, whose brother had been killed in a fight between Muslims, nomadic groups that come from northern Nigeria to southern Nigeria. And when I asked him, when did he file the report? He said, why file a report? I know the police are not going to do anything. So what sanctions, what happens when a country is designated by the Department of State as a CPC, as a country of particular concern, what it means is that Nigerian uh, government officials who may be corrupt or not dealing with their problems at home cannot, as they often do, send their kids to American schools, cannot travel to the United States to go Christmas shopping with the money they have stolen from the people. Why is the Department of State removing countries from the list of lists where they can be sanctioned and these people can be can continue, can be held accountable for what they're doing is because the Department of State seems to think that when it goes into a country, its role is to serve that country or serve the commercial interests of the United States alone or the political interests of the United States alone. But that is short-sighted. And for many years, under many other administrations, the Department of State, our diplomats, would negotiate both commercial for commercial ventures, but would also advocate for the rights of the individuals who were being oppressed in that country. For instance, in the era of Russia and the Cold War, the Department of State advocated for the rights of Jews who were in Russia, and many of them were able to leave what was at the time called the Soviet Union and and save their families. The United States in the past has advocated for the rights of American pastors in Turkey, for instance, like the case of Andrew Brunson. But this administration seems to think that for some reason, it cannot do both things. And that's a betrayal to people all over the world, and it's a betrayal of our values as Americans. Christina, I'm sorry to say that we're out of time. I love talking to you, we love talking to you, and hearing a real overarching view of our relationship as Americans um, with all these different uh, challenges to personal freedom and religious freedom across the world. So thank you very much for for all you do, and, and especially for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleagues, Ashley McGuire and Lee Sneed as co-hostesses. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thanks. Hi. Great to be with you. There's so much going on to talk about. Um, one thing that we thought would be very interesting to bring to our listeners' attention is a wonderful effort that we've we've talked about on the show before out of the USCCB, the United States Council of uh, Bishops, called Walking with Moms in Need. And uh, it's 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 a really great uh, effort. It has to do it's it's a it's a top down effort uh, to in, in order to engage every single parish uh, and archdiocese in the United States in a real comprehensive effort to meet the needs of young families of of, of single women who are expecting children and and need assistance because as Catholics. Uh, we feel very strongly that abortion is a terrible evil, that children should not be eliminated for being unwanted or inconvenient. But at the same time, we have to be very present in order to uh, to make the world a more welcoming place for children. Yeah, and I think, you know, with everyone's eyes on the Supreme Court right now and knowing that potentially in the next, you know, five to six months, we could see a major shift in abortion laws. And, you know, just looking at the case of Texas as a a small example of a place that's already really done that, um, you know, basically after six weeks in in Texas, um, you can't get an abortion. And, you know, that that law has been in effect for so long that many are pointing out that in just a few months, um, the babies that have been saved by that law are going to start being born and it it highlights uh, sort of the on the ground reality of what um, is going to be needed in a post world world and um, the fact that you know this this topic has been so abstract for so long and it's about to get really real because um, or you know let us hope um, and so you know it's exciting to see this sort of ground swell and grassroots um, efforts popping up all around the country and especially many of them led by um, Catholic parishes to start to sort of stand at the ready to meet the real needs of moms who've made the courageous choice for life. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people are asking on both sides, you know, are we ready? Are we ready for this post-real world? And I think the great thing that this initiative does is spreads that, that information because in a lot of senses we are ready. We've been doing the work on the ground for a long time, but a lot of people don't know how to connect with those resources. They don't know where to get free diapers, where to get free formula, where to get, you know, childhood education classes, clothes, assistant, you know, someone to drive them to the doctors. And hopefully I haven't read the entire 65 page document on watching with moms in need, but I'm hoping that, you know, these resources will be available to school principals and guidance counselors, youth group leaders. And so a church staff, so that immediately, as soon as someone comes in, boom, there's a list, boom, there's a list of, you know, resources, there's a list of volunteers who are willing to drive you there. I, it's a really incredible and, like you said, comprehensive initiative that I think is, um, is well, more timely is probably the understatement of the year. Of well, the one, of the ways, one of the ways that many, many of us here on the call, but uh, also many of our listeners help out is we work at pregnancy uh, resource centers. I read uh, fetal ultrasounds for free as, as pro bono work and, and, and I love that. I love doing that because one of the prettiest things that these re- resource centers do is that they have these wonderful ultrasound machines, many of them donated by the Knights of Columbus uh, because ultrasound machines are very expensive to, to purchase and also to run um, and they they are they put down the you know the um, 
the transducer on the woman's abdomen and suddenly something that was this this sort of uncomfortable idea or maybe a scary idea oh no a baby on the way what will i do turns into the reality of a beating heart um, a little a little person you can actually see uh, and this is very helpful for moms and dads um, in order to visualize um, this this beauty that's 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 really there it's not all about worry and concern and and distress it's about a human being that that you're so intimately connected to and, and that you can learn to, to love and embrace uh, with the help of others and with the help of all of us who want to, to be there for, for these young families or these young women um, who, who are understandably scared. I mean, we live in a scary world, right? We just, we just uh, have been going through the pandemic and so many people lost their jobs or were unable to work the hours that they need to work, that they had children at home. You know how difficult it's been to have children at home. Uh, when you're trying to get to work and you have children at home or you're, you're working from home, you have children, you're trying to get on the computer, you, you don't have enough Wi-Fi to go around. I mean, life has been very hard and very complicated for, for some time now in a way that we didn't expect through the pandemic. Um, I hope that, I, I really hope and pray that that with, with these changes in, in, in abortion uh, law that might be coming down the pike and, and, and hopefully a lot of states will go for uh, a more conservative, more more life-affirming uh, choice uh, for moms and, and babies that we that all of us can find a way to, to get out there, you know, put our feet on the ground and, and, and be there for moms. You know, I'm on this, this mom's Facebook group. It's for, um, it's a big group. It's maybe, I don't know, 5,000, 7,000 moms. There's some dads too who are in the DC area. And it's, it was primarily created to be like a resource for, you know, oh, uh, when are the tickets for zoo lights going on the website? And, you know, what uh, preschool co-ops have openings? And, um, I've been amazed to see how many of the moms that come on there are like, I can't buy formula and I'm out um, because my WIC card is empty. And, you know, it, it's, it comes to show that there's, there's, you know, challenges that parents face and then there's really challenges that I think many of us can't even understand because we've never been in that situation. And, um, you know, things like, mom saying that their car broke down and they can't get to, they can't get their kid to daycare and they can't get to work and they're going to lose their job. And if they do, you know, just these really pressing immediate problems that, you know, are just so challenging. And, and again, you know, the need is so great. I mean, these are moms who already have kids and, you know, thinking, you know, looking at that, if you're in a community where you're just, um, poverty is rampant, looking around and saying, how can I, um, cope with that? And, um, you know, back when the Supreme Court was, um, just considering the case as to the, um, free speech and religious liberty rights of, um, pregnancy resource centers, um, TCA did a, an amicus brief in the case where we collected the stories of some of the women who've been served by these centers and um, they were just absolutely amazing stories and there's one that I, I've never forgotten which was a woman who they helped her and and, and to the point to me with, with these stories was not just that these, these centers helped the woman to decide to keep her baby, it was that they helped continue to meet her needs and get her on her feet until she was in a place where she felt like she could handle being a mother. Um, but one of the stories that <clears throat> I've been thinking about a lot lately with all the snowstorms we've had around here was this woman who 
had a baby and ran out of um, formula in the middle of a snowstorm. And one of the workers from this pregnancy center, like drove to the, I think this woman didn't have a car, drove to the grocery store in the middle of a blizzard. I think it was in Boston, which if any of you have ever been in Boston in a blizzard, that is not something to mess around with and brought her everything she needed, formula diapers in the middle of the storm. And I just feel like that's, that story is kind of like a metaphor for where we are and where we have to be um, at this current time, which is willing to get in the car and drive through, you know, what have you challenge to meet the, the immediate physical needs um, that these mothers and children have and, and a lot more of them will have um, in, you know, in this potentially post-real world. Yeah, and I think that that's something, because this uh, Walking with Moms in Need is so comprehensive, it does take some time and some planning to get it going in a parish. And because of this immediate physical need they're talking about, Ashley, I think that you can, you know, to do things. Like, we can't all be genius medical radiologists like Dr. Christie, but, you know, we had friends who hosted a 12th night party, and everyone was asked to bring a pack of diapers for our local women's crisis pregnancy center. And I think those are easy ways. Our high schools always uh, have diaper drives and formula drives, and I think that that's something you just go you know, to your big box store and buy a big box and drop it off. And that helps somebody today um, while you're working, you know, with these other programs too. And, you know, my, I recently brought um, a bunch of donations to our local pregnancy resource center in DC. And I just asked the director when we were bringing this stuff, I said, is there anything you need right now? And she said, we always need um, formula and we always need um, a couple of other things. So I bought two things of formula and two things of diaper cream and it was a hundred dollars. And I was like, this is insane. And I showed my husband and my husband was like, how can anybody afford this? And I was like, I don't know. So it's, you know, especially with inflation and then there's these shortages of formula. That's unbelievable. A hundred dollars. Yeah. Just two things of Simulac Pro and two things like they were large things of Desitin, like good quality diaper cream um, was about a hundred dollars. And I was just shocked. You know, one of the things that Walking with Moms and Needs does is it puts all it 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 makes a, an effort to put everything together, all the different kinds of efforts that that we make to help uh, welcome children into the world uh, and and keep them you know keep them ticking, not just that moment when they first come in. Um, but it's it's not just diapers and, and desitin and formula, which are so important, so expensive, and now with inflation more. But it's even things like helping, uh, which I know we do in all these pregnancy centers, we do at parishes. We help families stay together, you know, with relationship uh, coaching, you know, relationship coaching, family coaching, uh, professional advice, like professional advancement, how, you know, jobs training. Um, there's so many different elements because it's not just about getting the child to, to, you know, to take that first breath, which is so important, but it's also to, about forming um, families that can, that can help that can support a child, you know, through 18 and, and do that in a, in a way that's not, a, a, you know, a, a crazy uh, crisis day after day. And a lot of that is very simple things that many of us take for granted, like um, having the right training to go and get that, that first job. That's, that's, that's important stuff. You know, Lee, and I know another issue that's important to Lee and I is adoption. Adoption is another way that, uh, that we can help moms in need. 
because uh, knowing that the option exists for to find a, a, a really great family for your child that you want to bring to the world but that you can't ca- that you can't care for is also a very beautiful thing. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think that's another thing that, you know, parishes need those resources to point women in the right direction, to get them going, to let them understand that they have some say. There's, it's not, their baby isn't going to be taken from them. They're going to, you know, be able to have some choice in this big parenting decision. Yeah, because um, I know for you, uh, Lee, for, for you, adoption was uh, an open adoption. You were able to, to find an agency and, and have this beautiful experience where you were present at the birth. And, you know, maybe a woman who um, is, is pregnant and, and can't keep her, can't, doesn't feel she can, you know, raise a baby, doesn't even know these options exist, that she could have this beautiful connection with the family that's raising her baby. What a, what a lovely thing, no? Yeah, absolutely. I know that some people, they're afraid that their babies will not automatically go into the care system or to an orphanage, you know, like you see in a movie. And um, I mean, I spent like four beautiful days in the hospital with my twins birth mother and we really got to know each other. And I'll never forget the moment when she grabbed my arm just as I was probably just picking something up and just said, I'm so glad I chose you. And it was such a vote of confidence that you could just tell that she was happy with the decision too. And, you know, knew that I was keep my promises and keeping up with her and letting her know how the kids were doing and everything. It was really, it was really a very special time. You know, Ashley, um, I, I w- I'm wondering what you think. And in some of these states, uh, if Roe does actually fall uh, in June or May or whenever, um, in some of these states, they're going to institute a very hardcore abortion liberalization policy, right? Like practically like, you know, you can abort right up until the moment you take the baby home from the hospital. <laughs> which I shouldn't laugh about, but sometimes you see these these abortion laws being promulgated in uh, in Vermont and other states like that. They want to write it into the Constitution. Like, they're super ultra-liberal, right? Abortion to 40 weeks. Um, what, how can, what, how do you think that in, in those states like that, um, walking with moms in need, uh, in need and other programs like that can be helpful? Well, you know, I think first of all, it's worth noting that those states are, you know, few and far between. And I think, you know, as states hopefully are given the right to actually reflect um, their voters, what voters want to see when it comes to um, protecting women and babies and abortion legislation, that those sort of extreme laws are going to be um, very few. And I think sort of... um, sort of stigmatize, I think, the extremism. I mean, right now, because, the, you know, the people have no say in the, in the issue and our laws are forced on us from the top down, um, we don't really have that stigma. But, um, you know, my hope is that we'll sort of stigmatize um, the grotesque barbarity of those sort of extreme laws. Um, but all that being said, you know, I think those those sorts of programs are going to be um, maybe needed more there than anywhere else because I think states that have laws like that, uh, they empower perps and gross shady guys who can take advantage of the fact that, you know, they can abuse a woman and then drag her at six, seven months to an abortion clinic. And, um, you know, a woman who feels like she doesn't have any choice. Um, I think those sorts of programs are going to be needed more maybe there than anywhere else because you're going to have women, you know, I, I, I genuinely believe that, um, you know, in a post-role world, there is going to be 
more acceptance and uh, sort of celebration of life, acceptance of um, and, and positive views of, of women who've made this choice. So um, that's my view. I think those those sorts of programs are going to be needed everywhere and maybe in the places with the most extreme laws the most. I think that's right. And I think especially if a woman um, puts off making a choice, which is a choice in itself, and then she finds herself to later stages in pregnancy, even if she knows vaguely that maybe it's still legal, um, the evidence of the life growing within her is going to be so clearly obvious that hopefully if she puts it off that long, she'll make the loving choice and, and work with this uh, outreach arm and uh, get the support she needs to love her baby. You know, ladies, I, it's hard to believe, but we're at the end of our, of our time. Um, Ashley, what do you like to leave us with? You have, th- you have 45 seconds. Or this week we're celebrating Valentine's, um, and so what better time to show the love and to maybe make a donation to your local pregnancy resource center or program like Walking with Moms in Need. I think that's a great idea, Ashley. I also think it's a great time to, you know, celebrate uh, the joy of your own marriage to let people know that marriage is actually pretty great and not and anything needs to be put off or afraid of. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's creating, it's creating the basis for that family that can support that child through those 18 years. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Bye. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in this Sunday's Gospel, when he will speak to us about the most revolutionary and challenging part of all his teaching, what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion and moral philosophy, his command to love even our enemies. Jesus calls us to do far more than merely tolerate those who oppose us or not be subsumed with a spirit of revenge toward them calls us to love them, to do good to them when they hate us, to bless them when they curse us, to pray for them when they mistreat us, to turn the other cheek when they slap us first, to give our undergarments to those who take our coats, and ultimately to be willing even to die for them. Doing so, Jesus is trying to help us to learn how to be like him, to love others as he has loved us first, to act in accordance with his image and likeness in which we were created. He tells us that if we do so, we will be children of the Most High, For he himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. We will become merciful just as our Father is merciful. If we live by this standard, if we measure out in this way, he promises, gifts will be given to us, a good measure packed down, shaken together, and overflowing will be poured into our lap. Not necessarily, of course, by the persecutors, but by God himself. We learn from Jesus how to live this gospel. He loves those who don't love him and even those who have made themselves his enemies through sin. He blesses those who curse him and blaspheme against him. He gives and gives and gives and forgives, forgives and forgives. We see this gospel put into practice in all its clarity on Good Friday as Jesus prayed to the Father to forgive his executioners, those who were mocking him, and all those whose sins were bringing about his expiatory death. For they know not what they are doing, he told the Father. When the soldiers of the high priest or of the Roman guards slapped him on one cheek, Jesus could have easily annihilated them by his divine power, but he didn't fight back because he loved those who were harming him and didn't want to harm them back. 
When they stripped him of his cloak, he allowed them to strip him of his tunic as well. When they bid him to walk on the road to Calvary, he walked a second mile. In all of this, Jesus is telling us, come follow me. He wants us to be distinguished from all the rest by the way we as Christians love everyone like he does, including those who don't love us. He tells us, for if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. When he tells us, do to others as you would have them do to you, he is ultimately saying, love others with the same forgiving love with which you would want to be loved by others. In all of this, Jesus is calling us to live by his standard. The standard of most in the world is reciprocity. We generally try to treat well those who treat us well. If others treat us poorly, we feel justified in doing the same to them. But as the old adage goes, living by the principle of an eye for an eye just leaves the whole world blind. Christ calls us to look on others with the eyes of God the Father, who is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Jesus tells us that if we love only those who love us, if we do good only to those who are good to us, if we give only to those who give to us, then we're no different from everyone else whom Jesus clearly calls sinners. The human notion of justice, of quid pro quo, is not enough. Jesus calls Christians to a much higher standard, standard of God the Father, to be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful, even and especially when others don't deserve it. This is what love really is, doing what's best for the other at all times, even when the other does not reciprocate it or appreciate it or even acknowledge it. But Jesus doesn't stop merely by calling us to live up to the standard he himself lived and told us to follow. He then says something absolutely breathtaking, that we, for our part, set the standard by which we want God to treat us. The measure with which you measure, Jesus declares, will be measured back to you. If we're merciful to others, God will be merciful to us. If we forgive, we'll be forgiven. If we're generous with others, God will be generous to us and bless us abundantly with good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured into our lap. Jesus says that there will be a correspondence between our actions and God's, for good or for bad. For if you forgive others their trespasses, he says in St. Matthew's Gospel, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The Father will treat us by the standard we adopt. If we wish to be forgiven by him, we must forgive others. If we wish not to be condemned by him, then we must not condemn others. If we wish to be loved by him, even when we sin against him, then we must love others, even when they sin against us. God loves us with an unconditional love and calls us to love others with unconditional love. If we choose, however, to love others conditionally, to do good only to those who are first good to us, to forgive only some, to condemn those we think deserve it, to retaliate when someone harms us, then Jesus tells us that that is the measure we will receive. This truth is not an exception to God's unconditional love for us. He still loves us even when we're ungrateful and wicked and never wishes to condemn us. Rather, it's we who refuse to allow his unconditional merciful love to live in us and grow. Our failure to love others impacts our receptivity to God's love. The only way for us to receive the full measure of God's unconditional love, to have our laps filled to overflowing with his graces, is by opening ourselves up to receive them by loving others unconditionally. The only way we can experience those blessings is by following Christ along the narrow, uphill, challenging path of real, self-giving love. 
Christ calls us to live by his standard of love precisely, so that in doing so we will be able to receive from the Father in return the full measure of his love. Let's finish by making three clarifications. First, the word Jesus uses for love and love your enemies is agape, not philia, the love we have for friends, or eros, the love between a husband or wife. Agape means unconquerable benevolence, that no matter what others do to us, we keep loving. We don't descend by vengeance to their level of hatred, but seek to unite the experience to God and to respond with and like God. Jesus is not calling us, notice, to like our enemies or to hang with them or to have warm, fuzzy feelings about them. He, but he is calling us never to stop wishing them well, never to stop doing them good, never to stop praying for them and their conversion, never to stop asking God to forgive them. Second, part of unconquerable benevolence toward even our enemies involves trying to stop them from whatever evil they're doing. We don't love someone if we enable him or her to continue to behave in a way that does harm to others and immeasurably damages their soul. We don't love an alcoholic by buying him a bottle of bourbon. We don't love terrorists by permitting them to continue to commit atrocities. We intervene. We stop them. But we do so out of love, not vengeance. The third clarification builds on the first two. Loving enemies doesn't entail loving them to the exclusion of loving others, like our family members, friends, and fellow citizens. We have to protect those entrusted to us. It would be a failure of love of neighbor not to defend them as good shepherds. The principle of legitimate self-defense and the principles underlying the doctrine of just war are based on this twofold protection. Love of neighbor doesn't mean allowing armed robbers to attack our family members or terrorists to take the lives of innocent victims because that would show a failure to love both those intending to do harm as well as their intended victims. The place where we learn how to love our enemies and put on God's love is the Mass, where we enter into Jesus' own prayer of mercy. The Mass is the good measure packed down, shaken together and overflowing, poured into our lap that Jesus promises. And it gives us the standard by which to measure out our love to others. It's where we're strengthened to turn the other cheek, to go the second mile, and to love by Christ's measure. It's where Christ from the inside helps us to live in love by his standard. On Sunday, let's ask for that grace. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 